All right. We're home stretch on First Peter. Um, we're in chapter five. We're starting chapter five today, and um, I think we're just going to go into Second Peter afterward because uh, that would make sense. So that's probably where we're going to go. But we are, we are, uh, we do have the runway. Um, we're going to be landing soon here. So chapter five. I'm going to take an entire four verses today, and. Uh, And this one's going to be maybe a little different for you guys, and you'll see why as soon as we read it. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter says, uh, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Um, I... Grew up in L.A., and, um, of course, we had a lot of professional sports teams down there. Uh, you got, like, the Raiders, right, which is, um, what is that, the mascot for the Raiders? It's like a, it's a dude with an eye patch and a helmet on with a couple of swords behind him. Like, he looks mean. He looks like, like someone you don't want to mess with, right? Like, that's, their, that's what's on their jerseys. Uh, I'm a Kings guy, personally, um, so always, I, I love the L.A. Kings. Um, <clears throat> they have a crown as a logo, right? But their mascot is, is actually uh, a lion. It's, it's the king, right? And um, usually you see this pattern with sports teams. Like they'll have some kind of a, a logo um, that says, you don't want to mess with me. Like, we're the best. Like, we're going to kick your butt, you know? Um, and I wanted to ask you guys if the Christian faith had a jersey with a a logo or, or, or the Christian faith had a mascot, what would it be? Okay, <laughs> okay. So, so, so the mascot says something about the people, right? It says something about the people that make up uh, the, the, the fan base. For instance, the Dodgers. Do you know why they're called the Dodgers? They're originally from Brooklyn, okay? And the, um, the people that would go to the games would be busy on the way to the games, walking there, dodging cars on the avenue. I'm serious. That's why they're called the Dodgers. So, so like the, 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 the logo usually says something, or the name says something about um, the, like the fan base. Um, the Lakers, I'm, I know I'm talking about all LA teams. Do you know why they're called the Lakers? Do you even know what a Laker is? There you go. Now, now the light can go on for people. The Lakers were originally a Minneapolis team, thus the Minneapolis Lakers, because they have a gazillion lakes out there. And so it's just dumb that they kept that name when they went to Los Angeles, because there's an aqueduct, and that's it. There's no, there's, there's no lakes down there, so it's kind of silly. I, I believe, um, having said that, it says something about uh, the people, the culture there. I believe that if a, if Christianity had a jersey with a, let's say, like an animal like that, that mascot on there. 
it would be a sheep. It would be a sheep, which isn't scary at all, right? Like, how many, how many professional sports teams can you think of, can you even think of one that has a sheep for its mascot? I couldn't. I sat and thought for a while, and I'm like, nobody's got a sheep on their chest when they go into battle. You know what I mean? A ram is different, dude. They, they're different, and we'll take that up later. So, uh, and, 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 the, and the reason why no one has a sheep on their chest, not a ram, is because there's nothing scary about it. There's nothing scary about it at all. There's nothing threatening. There's nothing aggressive. There's nothing that says, I'm going to kick your butt. There is no danger there. There's no danger at all. When we think about our currency in this country, when we think about our coinage in this country, the animal imagery on that stuff, we think buffalo, we think eagle, we think powerful creatures, majestic creatures, not sheep that's put onto that stuff. When it comes to protecting your property, when it comes to protecting your home, when it comes to protecting your lives and the lives of your loved one, we get guard dogs. We do not get guard sheep because they do not guard anything. They are the ones that need to be guarded, right? We don't put houses out in front of our, uh, signs out in front of our houses that say beware of sheep. Like no one would care. In fact, they would make sure that that's the house they hit, right? Okay. Okay. Did, did you get that, Ty? Is that recorded? There's nothing scary there. They are timid. They are docile creatures. It is them that requires guarding and care in order to survive. They don't guard and they don't protect anything. They require a shepherd. And yet, if the Christian faith had a mascot, I believe it would be a sheep. As we travel through the scriptures, the Old Testament and the New, we see an overwhelming theme of sheep and shepherd everywhere, everywhere. As we read through the Bible narrative, the picture of a shepherd and his relationship to the sheep is one of the most prominent themes that exist throughout the scriptures. It's a picture of care from the shepherd to the sheep. It's a picture of protection. It's a picture of sacrifice. It's a picture of devotion and commitment and watchfulness. And I want you to take note, it's pretty helpful for us to, to take note of the fact that pretty much any passage in scripture is driven by the verbs or verb in that passage, okay? And the one that we have here in our text this morning is no different. The driving verb here of these verses, one through four, is found in verse two, and it is the verb shepherd, and that word can be a noun, and it's usually a noun. And actually, when we get to verse 4, it will be a noun. But in verse 2, the way Peter uses it, it is a verb. It is an action. It is something that's done. He says, shepherd, or feed, if you're using the old King Jimmy, the flock of God that is among you. Now, a shepherd's typically found presented in a pretty good light in the Bible, right? Someone strong, someone important, someone necessary, a caretaker. Sheep, on the other hand, are always, or, or not always put in the greatest of light. For example, in Isaiah 53, you guys all know that one. All we, like sheep, have gone, we've gone astray. We've gone our own way, it goes on to say. It's not a compliment. 
And, and usually this is how sheep are talked about in the Bible, if you look at it. Sheep get lost easy. They wander into danger easy. They're picked off easy. They're vulnerable and they're unable to take care of themselves. They do not navigate well. They do not self-correct well. In other words, when they take off and they get lost, there's not an internal thing in them that allows them to get back to where they came from, like maybe a dog or, or birds. It ain't there. They do not sense direction well on their own. One professor in philosophy said, the existence of sheep is evidence against the theory of evolution. There's no way a sheep could have survived the natural processes of survival. They're not fit for it. They're not fit for it. They make no sense. They require constant oversight, constant leading, constant rescue, constant cleaning, or they will die. A shepherd once wrote in a book he published on the subject, sheep just don't take care of themselves. They require more than any class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. I have a really good friend named Peyton Jones, who's, um, I partner with him in New Breed Church Planning. He actually founded it and we're part of a church planning network, and this dude's written books. If you've seen Church Zero or if you've grabbed um, Reaching the Unreached out of the other building, that's Peyton Jones, and he's a really good friend of mine. But when he started in ministry, he was in Wales. And if you know what Wales is about, just picture a, a, a countryside of endless pasture and sheep. It's all about shepherds. It's all about sheep over, and lots of rain because that's how you get the green pastures. But when he was over there, he had a buddy that was a shepherd, and um, what they used to do oftentimes is get into this dude's car, he said sometimes once a day, and they would drive the roads around the pastures looking for downed sheep. And every day they would come across downed sheep that could not get up on their own. And it's because their, their wool would get so weighed down with the amount of moisture and the amount of mud and dirt and poo that would get stuck that they would just fall over. And they, they were unable to get themselves back up. And so they were just sitting ducks at that point. And so they literally had to drive their car around the countryside regularly to pick these things up so that they could get back to a safe place and not die, right? That's like the job of a, of a shepherd. Sheep do not take care of themselves. They need to be taken care of or they will die. Having said that, Peter here in chapter 5 addresses the people of God as a flock. A flock. Once again, the sheep reference in verse 2. Um, just like the rest of scripture does. And he's not doing it to put you guys down. I say you guys because I'm not a sheep. No, I'm just kidding. All right, that was a bad joke. I am one of you. We're going to talk about that too. He does it to make known that there is though a higher standard for those who are called to lead the flock, though they themselves are part of the flock. There is more expected of the people that lead the flock of God. There is more required, and that is what scares me in the position that I am in. This is the whole reason why for years I resisted um, my calling of getting into ministry, is because I knew that the standard that the bar, that the requirements, that the expectation that God has on that man is something that I didn't want to sleep with, live with, deal with, try to live up to. And so for years, um, knowing that God was pushing me into ministry, knowing that God was moving me that direction, I resisted and I resisted and I resisted to do it. And it's because of this. It's because there is a different 
set of requirements for that man. And I, all I've ever done all my life is fail. All I've ever done all my life is try as hard as I can to do something well, just to blow it somehow. And I didn't want to do that here. I don't want to do that with you. I don't want to do that with the children of God. And so I resisted for a long time because of the criteria that's there on this person. If there's someone, who's, um, if there's someone who is going to be tapped by God to lead his flock, he must meet certain standards. He must meet certain criteria. There is more expected of him. And this is what Peter is calling the church's, your guys's, attention to here in this section this morning, is the leaders of the flock of God. This is who he's addressing. Those who are to proctor the care of Jesus to the people of Jesus. Verse 1. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then he goes on, but let's go ahead and stop right there. It's hard to believe that this is the same Peter that we see in the Gospels. It really is. Because that Peter was pompous. That Peter was arrogant. That Peter was prideful. That Peter was self-serving. He was self-consumed. He was self-concerned. But this Peter is not. This Peter, something's radically happened to him. By all rights, this is an opportunity for this dude to say, I exhort you as Peter the Apostle, the best friend of Jesus. But he doesn't. He identifies himself as one of them, a fellow elder. And I want you to hear this again from, from me. Um, and I'm going to speak for the rest of us here at the door. We are one of you. We are one of you. We may have a different set of responsibilities that God has given us. Um, what we do, our priorities in, within this gathering may be a little different than yours uh, because of what God has made us, but we are one of you. Um, I know that this is stupid. This is part of the reason why if you go to either of our location, we preach from the ground. That's actually intentional. It's stupid little things like that that we make sure that we do to let you know that we're all in the same boat, that this playing field is leveled. You don't walk in and see a stage with a dude on a stage and a bunch of lights on him. That's not what you see at the door. Hopefully you never do. And I know it's not a big deal. I know that godly men have their churches set up that way. But for us, there's something psychological there where we just want people, when they look at us, to know that we're one of them, that we're no better than you guys. We're not above you guys. We're not more spiritual than you are. God doesn't like us more than he likes you. Um, we're, we're, all, we're all in the same boat here. Now, there is, um, there is something that Peter says here that we're not able to say, and that is that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. In other words, bodily, physically, he was there. He walked there, he saw it, he heard it. <clears throat> and yet he's not saying this as a one-up on anybody, as a superior, but he's saying it as an encouragement in that he can assure us, assure them, that everything that we believe about Christ is true because he saw it. He's assuring us that everything about our faith, the substance of our faith, everything that we believe without seeing is absolutely believable because he was there. That's what he's doing with this. 
And a witness is simply just like a witness is today. It's someone who sees and hears something and then tells someone else what they saw and heard. That's all it is, just like today. But then immediately Peter shifts back to say, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And this is kind of looked at differently as if he's saying that um, he actually experienced this too, like remember the transfiguration, right? Like he like experienced, he glimpsed the glory of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration where the father shows up, Jesus is there, him, John, I think Andrew are there, the three of them, Uh, Moses and Elijah make an appearance, right? And it's just this weird thing. Uh, But it's all wrapped, it's all clothed in in glory. The glory of Christ was was seen. And um, and so he could be speaking of that, but I I actually believe that that it's it's more future. I think he's going back to um, to, to saying that um, he, he's got this thing that's unique to him back to something that's saying we're all also still anticipating this other thing together, um, though he's glimpsed it. So he can say, unlike you, I was personally with Jesus, but like you, I'm also waiting for him to return. Let's just look at it that way. Like you, I'm waiting for him, which is the whole letter, right? Everything we've been looking at in Peter is, is all about keeping the church, including himself, focused on the fact that Christ is coming back no matter how bleak things look, right? But there is a significant application here for all elders, even those who did not walk bodily with Jesus, and that is that all elders must be individuals who are personally walking with Jesus. May not physically have walked with Jesus, but every elder, every pastor you know better be a man that walks with Jesus. The leader must be one who, though he may not have been in the flesh, walks with Jesus, continually growing in Christ, continually learning from Christ, and living with Christ. Brothers and sisters, a pastor is not a perfect man, but he is a man who wants to be. He is a man who has his eyes firmly fixed on the perfect one, the one who purchased him and bought him. He is a man who desires to be like Jesus. He is a man who's seeking to live out all that he reads here in the the scriptures in all areas of his life. Um, I always tell new believers that come into the church that, or, or guys that I'm discipling um, that they need to find a person who's living out the Christian life, right? So in their marriage, in their parenting, um, in their relationships, in their jobs, in their trials, in their sufferings, in their repentance, in their treatment of their enemies, and they need to crawl into that dude's pocket and just peek out for daylight every once in a while because that's how it works. If you want to grow in Christ... If you want to know Christ more, then you find somebody who is growing in Christ and desiring to know him more. And you follow that person. And yeah, men work with men, women work with women. It works better that way, right? But this is how it's done. Because it's that man and it's that, or it's that woman who's walking with Jesus. Not the one who just says all the right things. Not the one who's just dangerous enough with their Bible that they, that they can quote it, right? But someone who desires to attempt continually to do the things that they know to be true. Um, why does this matter? Why is it important that we follow somebody who is following after Jesus because they're going to be able to properly navigate us. They're going to keep us safe. They're going to feed us good food. They're going to give us good intel, right? It's the equivalence of why you wouldn't fly on a plane with a pilot who is blind. I wouldn't, would you? 
I would not get on that man's plane because he cannot see to get me to where I need to go, right? It's the same thing here. If you're desiring to navigate the Christian walk in a way that's pleasing to God, you want to be led by someone else who sees to navigate. That man may not have uh, physically walked with Jesus like we talked about, even though Peter did. However, the elder, first and foremost, is a man who walks with Jesus. It's a man who sees Jesus, thus being able to navigate the way. Now, before we go much further, further in this text, there's something else I need to draw your guys' attention to. Um, and this is, this is a small thing, but also kind of a, a big thing, and that is this. There are three words here. There are three key points of identification that Peter uses here when addressing the leaders of the church. One is the word elder, found in verse 1. I want you to notice that word, elder, which means uh, presbyteros, which is where we get the word presbyterian, which simply means <clears throat> maturity. So it could mean age, but it doesn't have to mean age. It means maturity in the Lord. Okay? This is why we don't take brand new believers and throw them into a, a pastoring job. All right? Timothy is a good example of one who was young and yet mature in the faith. He was an elder, even though he wasn't <clears throat> an elder in age. So that is elder. The second word is oversight. The word oversight which is used in most places in our Bibles as the word overseer, an actual title, which is where we get the word episkopos, which is where we get the word episcopalian, okay? And that is a bishop. That is one who sees over things, okay? And then the other one is, of course, the word shepherd. Even though it's used as a verb, oftentimes in Scripture it's used as a noun, as a title, and shepherd means pastor, so Peter here, in these four verses, is using three different key terms, titles of identification for, and this is what I want you to get, the same person. The same person. All three of these words describes, addresses, and references the same person. These are not three different offices, three different groups of people that Peter is addressing. This is the same, and this is why we look like what we look like at the door. And this is not a moment where I'm standing here to like boast or anything like that, but I want you to understand one of the things that's very different about the door than pretty much any other church you'll go to, is that you see a plurality of co-equal guys at the door. And the reason is because they are elders, overseers, and pastors all together. Let me put it another way. When you go to most churches, what do you see? Varsity, junior varsity, and then everyone else just trying to get on a team, right? You have the senior pastor. Then you have usually elders, which are not the senior pastor. The pastor's different, right? And then you've got everybody else. We've actually broken this up, and I don't we don't have time this morning for me to sidetrack into all the reasons why the church has done it, but the church, the American church, has become very corporate in its thinking and its formation of the church. And this is one of those ways we've done it, is we've started taking things that are not separate from each other and making them separate from each other. So that some dudes can be on power trips or that some dudes can just do what they need to do in peace or that the money, so that there could be enough money 
for lead, whatever it is, but I want you to know that at the door, that's why you see what you see, is you see four guys that are co-equals. I am not the leader of the door. I am not the leader among equals. I am, I am one of many guys who helps to keep each other accountable and lead you guys. Um, we are all uh, co-equals here trying to do the same thing. I can't even, I, we don't even have time again for me to go into the benefits of that, the reasons why the Bible sets it up that way. Number one, accountability, right? I don't, I don't do whatever the heck I want, even though I'm a pastor in this church. I am accountable to other men who are constantly watching me. I come under other, I am pastored actively, continually by other guys next to me in my life. Not guys just in other churches that live in other cities like these dudes. I do life with these guys and they shepherd me. And it's the same thing for the other three guys. They're getting shepherded continually. They're being corrected when they need to continually. They're being encouraged in, the, in, the, in that job that we've been given by God continually. Um, there's a million reasons why the Bible um, presents it the way that it does. So bottom line is this. This is one of those areas in your scriptures where you will see those different titles that we tend to separate and make different offices in a place where they're not different offices. They're one. This is one of the reasons why we have that philosophy. Okay, and uh, that's a that's a total like rabbit trail. I get that, but I think since we're here, it's just important to point that out to you guys that that's kind of why you see what you see at the door. There's no varsity leader, and then junior varsity guys. We're all on the same page. An elder is an overseer, is a pastor. We good? Cool. When you see someone come on at the door as a pastor, it's because he is all these things. And. Um, it is these people, these elders, these overseers, these pastors that Peter is speaking to here, even though he wants you all to hear this too, okay? Notice who he's speaking to in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to you. He's talking to the congregation. And he's saying, right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you, in front of you, to these guys about these guys. He wants you guys to hear what's about to be said to your pastors, and again, there's, there's a lot of good reasons for this too, right? He wants you to hear this and know these things, even though he then immediately shifts in verse two to them, okay? So he's letting them in on it. He's giving a, an invitation for them to, to sit in on these things. And so he comes to address the elders, the overseers, the pastors among them, verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And let's go ahead and, Stop right there and hit that. So first of all, I love what Peter says. Do it like this, not like this. Do it like this, not like this. It's helpful for me because I'm not that bright of a guy. And so I like it when someone lays out what it doesn't, doesn't look like instead of just saying, go be this. You know what I mean? Peter's actually saying what it, what it looks like to do this, how, how to do it. So first of all, he says, shepherd the flock of God. What is it that a shepherd does first and foremost? We've already touched on this. What is, what is it that a shepherd does first and foremost? He makes sure that the sheep can feed on good food without getting killed. That's it. He makes sure that the sheep can feed on good food without getting killed. The shepherd's job is to feed them, to lead them safely to food. Why? Because it's necessary for life. That's where life is, for the sheep. Peter knows this really well, doesn't he? Um, he knows that this is of utmost importance because Jesus drilled him on it. You remember that? John chapter 21, 
After Jesus rose, before he ascended, some of his final words to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, like, of course. I mean, you could picture Peter's, like, arrogance probably with that. Like, dude, come on, you know? He says, then feed my sheep. And then he asks him again. And Peter says, yeah, I love you. And he says, then feed my sheep. And then he asks him a third time. And by this time, Peter is getting annoyed, the text says. And he goes, Lord, like, you know all things. Like, why do you keep asking me the same thing? Then feed my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. This is everything that Jesus wants from those who love him. Okay? If you love Jesus and are a pastor, you lead his sheep to green pasture. That's what you do. And what is green pasture for the flock of God? Well, it is truth. And what is truth? Well, it's a person. And who's that person? His name is Jesus. This is my job with you, with what God has entrusted to me. The primary job of the earthly shepherd is to continually, exhaustively, exclusively lead people to more Jesus, not themselves. Not themselves. And I need to let you know that this is like a huge relief for me to, to understand now in my life, personally. Because for so long, I thought that my job meant so much more than what I was capable of providing. For so long, I thought that I had to be Jesus for everybody instead of leading them to Jesus, and it almost killed me, and it almost took me out of the ministry forever. For years, I thought when, I, when we planted this church that I had to be all things to all men, not in the way that Paul means it, but in the way that I can be the one who ultimately fixes and saves and keeps safe and keeps from falling. And I did. I ran every direction to everybody that had every need and expectation. And I almost killed myself because I was trying to do something that's not mine to do. I am not your functional savior and I am not your proverbial savior. I cannot fix what's going on in your life. The best thing that I can do for you and that any pastor can do for you is take you to the green pasture, which is Jesus. There are so many guys out there today and so many churches that are built on a personality and scary things happen when a church is built on a personality. That's another reason why we have a plurality of pastors at the door and not one dude. If I go away tomorrow, this church stands. It does whatever it needs to do and what it's always done, with or without me. It's all about working ourselves out of a job, multiplying, duplicating. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is that we are constantly multiplying ourselves out. It's not about us. We are not necessary to God for him to do what he's doing. And I know that, you know, that sounds horrible, but I think you guys understand what I'm saying. He doesn't need me. I have the privilege to be here because he's allowed me to, but he doesn't need me to do what he's doing, right? And so um, it, it can, um, there's, there's this church that, that still haunts me today uh, in Bend. And I won't, I won't tell you the name of it, but I think it was in uh, maybe 2007, 8-ish, this church 
kind of popped up out of nowhere <coughs> at the, uh, I think it was a meeting at um, the auditorium at Bend High School. And it was a rad church. It was a solid church. This dude was a solid Bible teacher, really good Bible teacher. Um, and this thing just exploded. Like this, this church just grew so fast. And, and there was just this buzz around it um, that was constantly going. People, everyone was talking about what God's doing. And like God's doing something here. God's doing something here. And it sure seemed like it, like, like just what was going on there. And uh, about five years into its existence, this dude fell, had an affair. And that church dispersed, the sheep scattered. And I still have a ton of friends that I know that used to go to that church that have never walked back into a church again because they are so busted up over it. And the reason they're busted up over it is because they misplaced who they're to be trusting in and relying on. And we just don't want you guys to do that. It's not me, it's not Brent, it's not Chad. It's not how many people are here or not here. Our job is to lead you to green pasture, which is Jesus. And if Jesus is your shepherd, then you shall not want. You shall not fall when something comes along and trips you up, right? But you will stand, and you will stand before the chief shepherd. So that, that's our primary job, now that I've given most of this away. Our job is to feed the sheep. He then continues on to tell us how to do it, which is really cool. So he says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, uh, we are not to shepherd because we have to, but because we have to. You know what I'm saying? We are not to shepherd because someone's putting a gun to our head, but because we'd go crazy if we didn't. Because everything in us desires it. And even back then when I, um, when I dodged the draft in the ministry like I was talking about, when I, when I um, was reluctant, reluctant to get into to ministry, underneath all that, everything in me wanted to. Everything in me thought this would be the coolest thing in the world if God allowed me the privilege of doing something like this for his kingdom. I wanted to. I had this thing in me that was like, gosh, this would be, this would be the greatest thing, you know? And, um, and, and a pastor, that he, he should have that desire, uh, just like Timothy talks about and just like Titus talks about. That's one of the first things that an elder should have is a desire for it, right? Um, not because someone's making him. Um, we do it because we're passionate about it. We do it because we're built for it. And it's because of that that we can't not do it. It's overwhelmingly a willing act on our part. This man here that Peter is talking about is a man who does not feel trapped into pastoring or continuing to pastor. <clears throat> Excuse me. But he is compelled into pastoring. Nor does he have motive or thought of his own personal benefit or gain. It is not a means to his own personal end. It is the reason he exists and he knows it, which brings us to calling. We have to talk about this. Because this is one that I think if we don't understand, then there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things that get fouled up afterwards. Calling is that which you cannot go to seminary to learn. I don't care which seminary it is or how good their, their professors are. I don't care how many books you read. I don't care how much you learn. You cannot learn this. It's not there to learn, and it's not something that the world can give you. 
A calling implies a caller. One who's in the authoritative position to do the calling. And when it comes to leading the flock of God, it is God, not man, who calls. One might ask, well, how can you tell the difference? I'm going to give you one of the biggest ways. That man, if he's called by God, is not self-appointed. Some of you might disagree with this, and that's okay. That man is not self-appointed. It is not the man who got into ministry because God spoke to him one night in the kitchen when he was grabbing a glass of orange juice, and he got some kind of feeling or thought he heard some kind of voice. It's not that God can't do that, but it's very subjective. It's very suspect. Rather, it is a man who has the gifting coming out of him already in such a way that other godly people who know him affirm it. It's something they can see. It's something that someone outside can see and identify. That's the man that God has called and that God has spoken to. Because we cannot, people, trust ourselves. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And part of the reason why we have so many sketchy, suspect churches out there today is because of self-appointed men who had a burning bush experience or a late-night refrigerator revelation. You know what I'm saying? And so they've gone and they've built a church, and anybody can do this. There's a lot of type A personalities out there, and they're always a type A personality who don't play in the sandbox with other guys, which is another reason why you don't see a plurality of leaders. You see one dude and then everybody else, because that dude does not know how to play well with others, right? But, it, but usually these guys have that kind of personality. They're maybe even entrepreneurial. They probably have above average oration skills. They're magnetic. They probably have a charisma about them that attracts people. That man can go anywhere and start a church and probably even grow it to a big church. We have them all over the place. And it's because he decided to. He thought it would be a good idea. But that's not how God does it. God uses a succession of accountability. He uses a succession where we, doing, living out the Christian life around other godly people, that know us, can know us, and see what those gifts are, and identify those gifts because you and I cannot trust ourselves. We tend to think higher of ourselves than, uh, than we should. We even tend to misidentify our gifts. We tend to think that this is our gift until maybe you start talking to your wife or someone outside of you that's close to you, and you start finding out, I don't think that's their gift at all. Right? Like we just, we just have these thoughts and so we can't trust ourselves with what we think about ourselves. So, so where do we go? How does God speak then? How does God affirm then the calling that's going on, what God wants to do in someone's life through other godly men around us? And yes, godly men matters. Not just men, not just buddies, not just dudes you hang out with, right? Godly men, like your elders, right? That's how we know. And I want you to know that that's how each of us got to where we're at. I am not a seminary guy. I'm basically a high school dropout. Like, I, I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary. Um, I'm, like my wife still says to this day, like, I can't believe that you are doing what you do because she knows who I am. 
Like I'm a dude that can't read books. I'm a dude that can't study. I'm a dude that can't take tests. I'm a, I, like, I don't do any of that. And yet when, when I got saved, like God did this thing inside of me where like I would lock myself in the room for days sometimes with my Bible and just go crazy eating, grazing on this stuff. Um, God did this thing. And, um, and then other men started to see it in me. So I, I, I get embarrassed whenever I go to a pastor's conference where there's a bunch of other pastors because one of the first things they ask is, where did you get your training? And I have to be like, I don't have any. And I look, I look like the idiot. I look like the one who probably shouldn't be a pastor to them, right? But it's something that, that God does. Look, we all know how God works. He doesn't take the people that the world would take and pick those people for his team. We all know that, right? Like when you put everybody up against a backstop to pick your team for kickball, like, like you're going you're gonna to pick the one that, that can kick the best. You're going to kick the one, you pick the one who can run the fastest. You know what I mean? You're not going to pick the losers. God does. God waits till the other dude picks his entire team, pulls all the best players off the backstop, and then he picks his team with what's left. He takes the weak things. He takes the despised things. He takes the things that are low. You know why? So when they go out and they change the world for his glory, everybody knows it's God and not them. That's why you and I are here. I'm sorry, but that's why we're here. If anything comes out of us that is supernatural, that is of any eternal worth out there, guess who gets the glory for that every time? And that's what he wants. And that's why I'm here. And that's how he picks his team. Um, and so that rabbit trail was all to say that calling is best identified through other godly people. Don't trust yourself. All right. Um, when it's done this way, when other godly men are calling those shepherds, identifying those shepherds into shepherding, we have leaders that will shepherd willingly, not under compulsion, eagerly and not for shameful gain. I want to make sure that you guys know this also about your pastors. If this place dried up tomorrow, money-wise, either of them, we would still be doing what we do. When we came in and we started this church, nobody took a dime. None of the pastors took a dime for years. In fact, we were the ones, I think, making sure the light stayed on and coffee stayed in the pot. Because it's not why we got into it. There was no personal motive at all financially, no personal gain in why we got into this thing. We wanted to see these communities one for Jesus Christ, and we still do. So yes, now, 10 years later, me and Brent both get paid to pastor full-time so that we can put more time into us. But I, I promise you, if that went away and we weren't able to handle business that way and that money went away, me and Brent would still be here tomorrow doing what we're doing. It may look different because we'd have to go back and find some other jobs. And so we'd have to probably disperse our time a little bit different, but we would be here doing what we're doing. We're not doing it for that. I promise you. All right, verse three, not domineering, my gosh, this is going long. I apologize. Not domineering over those, uh, over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Our strength and our effectiveness in leadership is not through power and control. It is through display. Lifestyle example. 
In other words, we buy into everything that we preach first before you ever hear it. We examine ourselves by everything that we put out first that is for us. We are called here as shepherds to be overseers, not overlords. And I want you to know that we know that. We are not here to control you. We are not here to dictate every move that you make. We are not here to make sure that you become just like us. We are not here to tell you, or we are here to tell you what God wants and to lovingly encourage you to be obedient to it because it's what's best for you every single time. That's our job. We're here to be faithful to communicating what's already been put down to you and then encourage you to walk in it, to buy into it, to live it because it's what's best for you. Listen, God is not a killjoy. I know that a lot of times we can think, this dude, he's just, he's just a buzzkill. Like anything, I remember thinking this as a kid, like anything that I actually want to do that seems like fun, the Bible tells me I can't do. Like what's God's problem? You know what I mean? Here's God's problem. Like he loves us more than we love ourselves. That's his problem. Like he actually knows what's good for us and what isn't. The problem is that we don't know what's good for us and what isn't. We are attracted to things that are not good for us. We need to be told from someone that loves us that they're not good for us. God does that. And it's our job then to communicate to you what God has already said, not to make things up and fill in the blanks and pick up the slack, you know, for areas that are cryptic or maybe, you know, a little bit mystical or missing. No, what God has written there, that's our job is to communicate, to give that to you and then encourage you to walk in that because it's what's best for you. It's what's best for me. Right? And I know that sometimes that's going to make people angry. A lot of times it has made people um, angry. It, it'll sometimes hurt. It'll sometimes be uncomfortable. It'll sometimes make people upset with us. But, but please don't mistake our truth-telling for a power trip. Please don't. Because we're not trying to have a power trip on you. We're just, we're just trying to tell you the truth. Don't shoot the messenger for delivering the mail. Please Believe me, we do not like having some of the conversations that we have to have. We don't like them. We do not like risking the relationships and the reputations and the possibility of people getting upset and leaving the church because we've told truth. We don't enjoy it. We don't gain from it personally, but a true shepherd and not a hireling will endure it and he will perform it. Not because he's domineering, but because he's shepherding. Not because he seeks power, but because he seeks to please God and not man. And then he closes here in verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you, the elder, overseer, pastor, will receive the unfading crown of glory. We do this to hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant, just like you do. That's all I want to hear. I want to hear that in some way, somehow, along the road of my life, I did something that was pleasing to God, that was glorifying to God, that was useful to God, something that he could be proud of. I want to hear those words. Everything else is just a bonus, including this crown of glory, whatever it is. So we all know that crowns back then in Peter's day were, um, they have these games, basically like the Olympic Games, right? And that was kind of like one of the biggest forms of entertainment at the time were these these games that they would have. And uh, if you won these games you would receive afterward a crown. And it was usually uh, a wreath that was made up of some kind of a plant or some kind of flowers. A lot of times uh, 
parsley, right? So like you, you put all this work in and, and, and go up against the best guys in the world to compete and you win and they put like a salad on your head. You know what I mean? Like congratulations. You know what I'm saying? Um, but, but this one's not going to be like that one. Um, this one is a, a crown of glory. Um, and I have no idea what that is exactly. I know that glory uh, speaks to splendor. I know that it speaks to a, like a heavenly bliss. Um, but uh, I, don't, I don't know what that is, but I want one. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I want one. I want to be crowned with that by God when I get home. But what I really want to call your attention to, of course, in this last verse, verse 4, is with all this talk of shepherds and overseers that exist in the church in the form of mere men, sinful men, imperfect men, there is over and above all of them a chief shepherd. A chief shepherd. The church belongs to him. We earthly shepherds are roadies. He is the rock star. Our job is to run across the stage when someone throws something on it really low so that we do not obstruct the view of the headliner. It's all about the Lord. We are here to do whatever we can to support his act, his show, his glory, not our own. We are the caretakers, us worldly shepherds, under shepherds. He is the owner. And that's what it means, is that we are actually under shepherds. I hate the term when I go to a church and hear some, the senior pastor, the senior pastor. Now, there is a senior pastor, but it ain't, it ain't him. Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. He's the senior pastor. We are under shepherds. We are wannabes. We want to be like him. We want to do what he's left us here to do. We want to try to be like him. We desire to be like him, but we are not him. You guys all understand that, right? We are not him. We will fail you. He will not. And this is why if you follow us or any other pastor, or you follow us or any other pastor that you might have only as far as we or they follow him. That's it. All right, let me skip some stuff. Let's just go ahead and close with reading. Um, turn with me real quick to John chapter 10. This is where we got our name for this church. John chapter 10, verse 9. And I don't even think I want to say anything anymore. I don't even think I want to comment. I think we'll just read this and then we'll close. And we'll start up in verse 7 of chapter 10. Where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, 
who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Got any Gentiles in the house? Boom, there you are. I must bring them also. Look at the language. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. This is what it's all about. There is one shepherd and there is one flock. And the reason that there is one flock is because that one shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. I haven't done that for you, and I probably never will. It is Jesus Christ who has laid down his life for the sheep so that the sheep may have life abundantly in him. And this is his church, and you are his people. And if at any point any of us get off track as your pastors and start feeding you anything other than Jesus, let us know. Because that's what it's all about. That's our job. That's why we exist. Lord God, thank you so much for being such a good shepherd, Lord. Thank you for being a shepherd that does not fail, um, that cannot fail, that will never fail. It's such a comfort to know, Lord, in those times in my life when I go a little sideways um, or get sidetracked into things that I shouldn't. It's such a comfort to know that you will leave the 99 for someone like me. That there's nothing that, that you will allow to separate me from your love. So what a magnificent shepherd you are. How secure we are. And, and I think maybe more than anything, um, we need to know that. We need to really um, meditate on the security that we have in you because of you, because of who you are, because of what you've done, because of the kind of shepherd that you are, that we cannot get lost. And what a beautiful thing that is. And so we thank you, Lord, for um, just all the selfless stuff that you do, all the serving that you do, that you're constantly on watch, constantly on guard, constantly picking us up when we fall over um, for your name's sake, because it pleases you because it pleases you that we are all with you throughout eternity, Lord. And so we just thank you and acknowledge that it's all you're doing and not ours. God, help us here at the door, us leaders, us uh, elders, overseers, pastors, God, not to get ever heady, not to ever think more highly of ourselves than we should. God, keep us humble, keep us teachable, keep us meek, keep us... Um, completely focused um, on your word, God, nothing else. You said that you will build your church, God, so we don't need to sit here and trip out and put a cape on and act like it's something that we can do. We just, we just need to be faithful to put you before the world, and you're going to do it, God, and we thank you that you will, and we'll praise you when you do. And so we, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for your word, which guides us and navigates us clearly, which sees and allows us to see clearly. 
in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.